Welcome to Return of the King, Straight Talk About End Times. This is not a sermon series. This is a short-term class that we're offering over the course of about eight weeks here beginning in December 2015 uh, and going through at least January of 2016. Uh, We're going to look at what leads up to the return of Christ, what comes after the return of Christ, and everything in between. And so um, we're going to be trying to take this from a biblical standpoint rather than a popular culture standpoint. Some of what we talk about here may be different than what you've heard before. And so thanks for tuning in with us. If you're listening online as we're going through this course, please feel free to email me uh, through our website or neil, N-E-I-L, at cypressstreet.org anytime with any questions you might have, and I will certainly try to get to them as we go through this course. Uh, Thanks for listening. Here we go. Uh, Just to kind of recap where we're at so far, first we talked about the predominant view and belief the very first week. You know, we talked about um, kind of the left behind series, popular notions about end times that uh, most Christians in our culture probably subscribe to or figure that that's what it's going to be like because that's what we see that's what we read that's what we see in movies and and it's the popular thing in America right now Uh, we talked about how that hasn't been and really is not the popular thing in Christianity as a whole it's kind of a unique phenomenon here in America in the last couple hundred years uh, since the 1800s and before that no, we have no record of anyone believing in a secret rapture or things like that. And so um, it was just kind of a, an eye-opener to see, okay, not everyone has believed this. In fact, most of Christianity has believed something else. And so what, and we've kind of, the next week we followed up by saying, okay, well, here's some fundamentals that we can know from Scripture uh, that that we can know with greater clarity. In fact, we talked about our method, which we're going to cover again today, but uh, of realizing that, you know, Revelation, even though it's the most popular end times book, it's not the only end times book. And in fact, there are passages of scripture that are not apocalyptic prophecy, which is our big word from last, uh, last week. It seems like every week we end up with a big word, don't we? So, Uh, Last week it was apocalyptic prophecy and we learned about that kind of literature and how it's very unique and it's very full of symbolism and it would have been hard for an ancient Jew to interpret, much less us, you know, here years later from a very different culture and removed by many years. And so realizing that there's going to be passages of scripture that are not as clear and then there's going to be passages of scripture that are easier for us to understand. And so our method is going to be to begin with the parts that we can understand the best, the parts that are the clearest, and use those to help us understand the parts that are not as clear. Just like you do in life, just like you do, like when, uh, you know, if you read a paragraph that's whoo, over your head, well, you look for context clues, things that, you, that are clear to you, to help you understand what's not clear to you. And that's what we're doing when it comes to end times and uh, things like the book of Revelation. So uh, today is going to be a pretty, I think, a pretty mind-blowing day. So strap your brains in. Jeb said he was worried about that because he needs his brain for college. I told him he'll have plenty of time to recover before the next semester starts. So 
Anyhow, so just strap yourselves in today. It's going to be interesting. We're going to look at a lot of different scripture passages today. None of them are going to come from the book of Revelation because, again, our method is going to be to start with what's clearest and move to what's not. And so we're going to look at the second coming of Christ today through the lens of some of these clearer passages of scripture so that we can get some grounded in some fundamentals uh, before we start wrestling with a lot of symbolism and things like that. So, uh, this word, our fancy word of the day, is parousia. And so that's your first blank. Um, parousia is the word that's most frequently used in your New Testament for Christ's second coming. It's a Greek word, parousia. It was not originally a, uh, a religious word term. It was not uh, invented by Paul or any of the New Testament writers. It was borrowed from things that they would have already understood in their culture. Uh, A parousia, this would have been a term that they would have used, for instance, when, let's say, Caesar comes back from wherever he had gone. You know, maybe he was out on the battlefield and, uh, and, and the Roman army had just won a great victory somewhere because they were always conquering new territory, right? And then he comes back to Rome victorious. The parousia then is, is him returning, him coming back from wherever he was. And what happens is then everyone goes out of the city walls to greet him. And then they come back in. They escort. It's like a parade then. So everyone goes out to greet the emperor and they usher him back into the city. So when he reaches Rome, it's called the parousia. The emperor is returning and they go out and they usher him back into the city. And so this is the imagery that Paul and other New Testament writers choose to use to refer to the second coming of Christ. So the, when you read in your Bible, you know, like we're going to read today, of, uh, when Christ comes again, they're talking about this word, parousia. Now, Uh, Let's just be reminded as we kind of established week one that we have no record of anyone believing in a secret rapture before uh, the 19th century when a Scottish girl claimed to have a vision of it and a man named Darby took it and ran with it over to America and it took root here. And the other thing I want you to note as we prepare to look into a lot of scripture today is that to notice through all these passages of scripture, you see them all listed out on your paper. Uh, through all of them, you're going to notice that there is only, consistently, only one return of Christ that's referred to. One return. And there's a lot of events that are associated with that return. Uh, And so, we might call it one busy return. Okay, so let's look at a lot of major passages that talk about Christ's return, and we're going to use our method of beginning with what's the clearest, I'm moving to less clear waters, but today most of it is going to be on the clearer side of things. Uh, so we're going to start with Matthew 24, 26 to 27. All right, who wants to read? Now, these are, we're going to be looking at pretty specific verses, you know, and so we'll look like Matthew 24 there's a lot in Matthew 24 that we can look at and we will over the course of this study today we're talking specifically about uh, Christ's return and and looking for uh, for starters we're going to look at what will it be like when Christ returns what will the return be like 
And we're not given a whole lot of information, but we are given some information. So let's find out what... And so the verses we look at are going to be specific to that because if we read the whole chapter of every one of these sections of Scripture, we would be here all day. So um, we just don't have time to do that. So will someone read for me verses 26 and 27? Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner room, do not wait him. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Ah, so what will it be like? What are some describers you heard there? We'll be seen by everyone. Unexpected. Unexpected. What are some words from the scripture that describe what it'll look like? It's lightning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west. So like, you know, lightning can flash a long ways away and be reflected and seen great distances. You know, it, as, you know just something that happens a long ways away when it's that bright. Man. So, uh, one thing we can say from this, and we're going to see it again as we look through Scripture, is that it's, it will be visible, right? One thing it will be like is visible. Highly visible. Uh, let's look at verses. Uh, I'll read a little bit here of 30 and 31. Uh, and then, this is still in Matthew 24, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, again visible, and then all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And that's. Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky is, is a reference back to Daniel, which is uh, another section of Scripture that's that apocalyptic prophecy type that we talked about with Revelation. Uh, so this is a quote from that. So you see, like even when Jesus is talking here, and this is Jesus sharing with his disciples, he's pulling bits and pieces from literature that's apocalyptic in nature, and and so you just you see a lot of this is. Uh, is imagery and symbolism and even in the clearer passages uh, let's keep reading there so with with power and great glory and they and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other so um, a trumpet is what loud all right so the other thing we're going to say is audible visible and audible. Let's uh, let's look at some more uh, verses thirty-six to forty-two in that same passage. But of that day and hour, no one knows—not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the the coming of the Son of Man would be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So we, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. 
Now this is an interesting little section here, and we're going to spend just a second right here. Uh, in fact, let me just go ahead and, and play you a piece of a video clip talking about that passage we just read, because this is one of those passages that we hear most often when it comes to a secret rapture kind of theology, where they, they talk about, you know, there's two people in a field, and they're working along, all of a sudden, one of them's gone, Right? Or there's, you know, two people doing this, and boom, one of them's gone. And so, that's where we get this, you know, that verse is quoted, but it's quoted out of context, right? You just hear that verse, and they're talking to you about a rapture, and so, wow, yeah, it sounds like a rapture. Uh, so, let's put it in context, and we're going to, to do that, listen to uh, the first part of a video here by our friend Ben Witherington III. That sounds like the name of a stuffed animal bear to me. I don't know why. That would be a really good stuffed animal name. I like to say text without context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. If you look carefully at Matthew 24, which is one of the major proof texts for the study of a theology called the rapture, uh, we have not only the phrase, one will be taken and the other left behind, one grinding in the mill will be taken, the other will be left behind, one standing in the roof will be taken, the other left behind. But before that, Jesus tells us, retells us the story of Noah and what happened in his generation. And what he says, of course, is that uh, all of humanity was swept away by the flood, and those left behind were the righteous ones, Noah and his family. So in the Noah story, it's good to be left behind. It's not good to be taken away. That is the context for what Jesus says after that. When he's saying one will be taken and another left behind, it's the one that's left behind that's going, shh, I'm really glad to be left behind. Because what taken means is what it meant in the Noah story. Taken away in judgment. Taken away in the flood. Taken away for judgment, right? So ironically, when you have the left behind series going for you, that it would be better to be left behind. And it would be not so good to be taken away, because what taken away means in those kind of texts is judgment. The other major... We'll get to the other major in a minute. That's First Thessal, uh, Thessalonians. But uh, so I, I told you a couple of weeks ago as a teaser. I said we're going to see that it's actually better to be left behind. You know, because that's the whole premise of the Left Behind series, right? Is that the righteous people are taken, poof, secretly. There's no trumpet, right? There's no lightning. They're just gone. And then the people left behind are like, oh no. And then the Antichrist and the tribulation and all this stuff unfolds and it's terrible and and so that's the that's the narrative. And when we read in scripture, like we say, you know, you never hear the, the part before read about Noah. And when you read it, it's like, wow, <laughs> Jesus says, you know, some were swept away, and and then he tells this story of taken away. And uh, let's also look at 
Because this, this same Matthew 24 happens also in Mark and in Luke. They have their own versions of this account. And so I want us to go ahead and look at uh, Luke 17, which is kind of a parallel to this. Luke 17, kind of at the end of the chapter. And he says, starting at verse 34, I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other one will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. See, same, same sort of deal. And then verse 37, And answering, they, his disciples, said to him, Where, Lord? Where what? Where will they be taken, Right? And he says, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Now that's some imagery for you. All right. Vultures don't gather around live bodies. <laughs> All right. They gather around dead bodies. They, they gather around carcasses. It's, it's, so, um, so where will they be taken? Somewhere you don't want to go. Mine says eagles. Eagles? Yeah. All right. Well... <laughs> What version is that? King James. Really? Uh, what is, does anyone have other versions that say something other than vultures? Interesting. I didn't know the King James did that. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at New American Standard, which is like a more literal um, translation than most, and it's vultures too, but I'd never seen eagles anywhere else. I want, does anyone have New King James? That's what you're looking at? Yeah, and And it's eagles too, so they both do eagle. They're very patriotic. Which, eagles are another bird of carrion, but we just don't like to think of them as that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, they do hunt their live stuff too. But anyway, they both hunt prey. Uh, So, okay. It was also interesting to me, I was looking at a uh, commentary by a guy that I've come to respect a lot, and uh, Kenny actually got to meet him when he was an interim over at First West for a while. The guy's name is Bob Utley, and he's a uh, Baptist background, which a lot of times in the Baptist church you hear more of the uh, left-behind model of things, but Bob Utley is, yeah, he's a, uh, he's written a lot of commentaries on scripture, and I really respect him for the way that he comes to things without any kind of, you know, he really strives and makes an effort to not come to something with a scripture passage with his presupposed notions of what it's going to say to him, and really tries to just say, hey, in context of the scripture, regardless of my theological background, what does it say? And so it was interesting to me that he, of a, of a Baptist background, said, uh, quote, usually Matthew 24 and Luke 17 and all this is used as support for a secret rapture of believers while where uh, the unredeemed are left. However, in context, Noah's day, the unredeemed are taken to be judged. In Matthew 24, took them all away, describes those destroyed in the flood. And, and then he also talked about the Luke 17 part of where, where would they be taken. So 
like I say, I've really gained a lot of respect for him, and we may have more quotes from him later. I'm just going to turn this off. seems like it's popping in and out. Y'all hear me okay? If anyone can't, let me know. I can use old faithful over there. So, okay. Questions on, on this before we move to a different section of Scripture? Are your minds blown yet? <laughs> Always makes me think, you know, when I read something like that, what other verse have I not read in context, you know, and there seems like I'm always coming across verses that either I've used or I've heard used a lot that I've never really considered the context for it. And so we're all guilty of that sometimes. Uh, let's look at uh, Luke 21, just a few pages over, 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and glory um, again see just throughout the narrative every time we read about it it's talking about how audible and visible and it's a big deal there's nothing secret about that right it's a I mean every, everybody sees everybody hears there's a it's a big arrival it's not something that and again it's the imagery you know I keep coming back to in my mind picturing Rome this huge capital city and the emperor comes back greatest empire in the world he comes back victorious like the rumbling comes through the crowd and the trumpets are sounded and they say you know they call to the watchmen on the walls who's coming and they say you know well, the emperor is returning and it, I mean it's a big event that takes place and and it's not you know it's news big news extra extra read all about it it goes through and and it's not missed it's a big deal that word parousia does that. So, last one we're going to look at with what will it be like is 1 Thessalonians 4.16. someone read that for us? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay. So this is Paul echoing the same things that Jesus taught us about what it'll be like. Um, I'll play a little bit more for you. Um, this passage here, um, he'll descend and the dead in Christ will rise first. Uh, this, is, this is another one uh, that is sometimes used when talking about the rapture. When Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. Um, and then we, the next verse says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. So there's this image of, you know, Christ returns and we're swept up into the air. And, and so that's a uh, sort, you know, sort of a rapture-like image. And so uh, let's listen to the rest of this video clip. For a theology of the rapture, the Bible, of course, comes out of 1 Thessalonians. And what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 is, he's first of all, he's trying to comfort Thessalonians, who, some of whom have died from persecution in Thessaloniki. Members of the church have just died. And the Thessalonians have a question. Are they going to miss out on the resurrection? Are they going to miss out on the return of the Lord? That's their question. The question is not, when will the rapture happen? 
Their question is, are they going to miss out on the blessings of when the kingdom comes fully on earth? That's the issue. What Jesus says to them is, no, in fact, the dead in Christ, he says, when the Lord returns and the trumpet blows and the Lord comes back to establish the kingdom fully on earth, so that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. When he comes back, what's going to happen is this. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then the living will be transformed, and we will meet the Lord in the air. Now, air does not equal heaven. This is not about rapture into heaven. It's about meeting the Lord and greeting the Lord, being the greeting committee to go out and meet the Lord in the air, and then return with Christ to reign upon the earth. The, the destination of the story in 1 Thessalonians 4 is not heaven. The destination is returning as part of the royal entourage with Christ to earth, to reign on the earth with Christ. And the imagery that Paul is using here is the image of a royal return of a king to his city, right? So you have this picture of a walled city. You have watchmen on the wall, like in Psalm 24, the watchman on the wall says, um, here's the cry out on the road. And the cry out on the road, goes, the trumpet blows, and the cry on the road goes, lift up your heads, O ye gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, so the king of glory may come in. This is an entrance liturgy, right? And the watchman on the wall says, who is the king of glory? Stand and identify, right? And then the reply comes back, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. So this is a sort of entrance liturgy, and Paul is going to depict the return of Christ as like a king coming back to his city. Now, everybody who lived in a wall city knew what the protocol was. The protocol was, once you knew it was the king, and you heard his herald blow the trumpet, and you knew he was out, but you don't leave him stand out there. You send out a greeting The greeting goes out from the city, meets the king on the road, and where they go from there is not back down the road, but into the city. Similarly, Christ is coming from heaven with his angelic and saints entourage. The people on earth go forth to meet him in the air and then return to earth to reign with him on the earth. This is not a story about a pre- or mid-tribulation rapture. This is a story about the return of the king and the welcoming him back to earth to reign on the earth with those who are raised in Christ. I've got another clip of uh, I've got a clip of this guy N.T. Wright that we'll hear some more from talking about Perizia. Uh I might just play a little bit of it for you and I might stop it kind of at an awkward place somewhere in the middle if uh, depending on how it goes but just to kind of echo some of what we've been talking about with a British accent and from a smarter individual and I think I've mentioned this guy to you before but he is um, not that you have to agree with everything he says because he's brilliant, but he's brilliant and he uh, is considered one of the foremost scholars on especially the New Testament, uh, but really of the Bible in general. And he reads, uh, you know, like fluently Hebrew and Greek. Like that's, he doesn't read a Bible like you and I have. He just takes the original manuscripts and that's like his devotional quiet time. He just sits down with the Greek <laughs> and just reads it like 
like he reads English, you know, and he teaches at Oxford and Harvard and all that, and has like 12 doctorates. So he's, we, sometimes it's a little bit hard to follow, besides the fact that he has a British accent, um, but he also does a pretty good job of bringing it down to our level. And so he talks a little bit about this second coming of Christ and that word parousia. So, so let's just take a quick listen. <coughs> This eschatology is to be articulated in the face of Caesar and his imperial hope. And when Paul uses the word parousia, second coming or appearing, parousia is not an Old Testament technical term. It is a Caesar technical term. It's what happens when Caesar has been away from Rome on a journey or fighting a battle and he comes back, his royal appearing, his royal and perhaps divine appearing because by this time some of the Caesars at least started to give themselves divine honours. And everyone goes out to meet him, to welcome him back into the city. That's the parousia. That's what's going on in 1 Thessalonians 4. Jesus is coming back and it is at his name that every knee will bow. Philippians 3, where Paul has been saying, I want you to imitate me. And well, he's just been talking about how he gives up his privileges as a, as a Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews and all the rest of it. How can the Philippians give up their privileges? Well, they're not Jews, most of them. But they are, some of them at least, citizens of the Roman Empire. And they all benefit from Rome. He says, I want you to sit right to that. I want you to sit loose to it. Because their God is the belly. They glory in their shame with their mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And let me tell you, we didn't discuss this this afternoon, though we might have done. When We may have covered some more of that later that he gets into. I don't want to muddy the waters today. So, just to kind of, you know, that's, they're just kind of echoing this idea that's completely, I think, uh, pretty radical for us as well. This may be the second mind-blowing moment of the day, but we'll really... Uh, dive into that more in depth later is getting past this idea that we've had of of being whisked off somewhere and more of an idea of ushering the king in and that's a different imagery than we're used to having associated with the return of the king so let's talk about what will this return what will what will what will it involve what will happen you know we talked about what it'll be like Visible, audible, not secret. It's a big deal. Everybody knows about it. But what will it actually entail and involve? So let's start looking at some scripture passages. Some of them will be from the same passages. Some of them will be new. But let's go back to Matthew 24. Verse 31. We read this a few moments ago. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect, his chosen ones from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. What is, um, Kelly, what does yours say? It just says um, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Okay. Uh, So kind of the first thing we're going to take from this of what will happen, and we're going to probably skip around on your blanks there, so just... We'll do the best we can here, but we're kind of going and we're going to kind of take the scriptures in order so it's easier to just flip through your Bible in order as we go. But that they're not all like chronological, so we'll kind of, uh, which none of this really is either. It's no particular order because we've got one coming and a lot that's involved. But one of the first things we can say that's involved when Christ returns is that we're gathered for a greeting. 
we gathered to greet him. That's that whole idea that they were just talking about, the parousia. He's coming, a welcoming party goes out to greet. Uh, so gathered for a greeting. Let's skip down and read 36 to 42 again. Uh, no one knows the hour. Um, the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. Uh, verse 38, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. There will be two in the field, so forth and so on. And so, one thing we can say that will be involved with this coming is some will be taken for judgment. So that's another one of our blanks. One of the things that will happen that we know that's clearly stated in Scripture is that when Christ returns, some will be taken for judgment. Just as the people in Noah's day were judged, just like the people in Luke 17 that talks about Sodom and Gomorrah in this same area in the same kind of passage and so we know that there's a judgment aspect to Christ's return. Let's look in Romans um, Romans chapter 8 so we'll flip over a few pages past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts to Romans someone read for us 18 to 23 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it to hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we knew that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the best fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Okay. What does your um, read nineteen again? For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the Son of God. Of, so, the, sons of, God. of the sons of God. Okay. And sons is little, so it's not. Right. Yeah. Okay. I was making sure that was going to be our second interesting King James moment, but uh, <laughs> 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 we got it all right there. So. Uh, so a couple things here, and this is a passage we're going to come back to. It's not one that maybe comes to mind. You know, you don't think of Romans when you think of end times theology, uh, typically. But this passage does talk about some of what's involved with that in a very interesting way. And so we'll have more to say about it soon. Um, but one thing that's interesting here is it says... Creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The revealing of God's people, his children. So there's, this is uh, the first thing on your little list there of what it will involve is who's who is revealed. 
who's who revealed. And we're going to, we'll see some more passages that, that talk about this. But there's this sense in which when Christ returns, it'll be made known who are his and who are not his. There's also a thing here. Uh, notice what it says about creation. And we're going to come back to that a little later. Uh, but we're going to pair this passage and what it teaches about creation. You don't think about that, but it says the earth, the creation, this, everything that God created, everything, is eagerly waiting. It's longing for Christ's return. We think about us waiting for Christ's return, but all of creation has, has a problem and is waiting for Christ to resolve it when he comes again. And so it's not just us that get renewed and so forth. Uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. We'll look at a couple of passages here. And this is another one that we'll come back to in the days to come. Someone read for us 23. There is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. So all who belong to Christ, again, who's who being revealed, will be raised when he returns. What does raised or resurrection mean and entail? Uh, Let's skip down to verse 50 to 53. And we'll read, it says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we will not all all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Uh, And it goes on, and this is often read, have you ever heard that passage read at a funeral? And me too. And, and it's appropriate, very appropriate to read at a funeral. However, sometimes I think that it's given us the impression that, um, that it's talking about what happens when we die. But the context is what happens when Christ returns. And it does also talk about what happens when we die. But that part about receiving a new body and the perishable becoming imperishable and receiving not just a physical but a spiritual body there's a different sort of body that whole thing that's involved with resurrection is something associated with Christ's return and so another thing we can say is believers get new bodies believers get new bodies (laughs) I think I heard somebody say something funny (laughs) we'll talk more about new bodies in details over the next few weeks uh, let's go on to First Thessalonians 4 again someone read verse 14 for us since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again we also believe that when Jesus returns God will bring back with him the believers who have died 
This is another blank. The dead return. That sounds like something on HBO or something. <laughs> the dead return. But the dead in Christ come back with Christ. So when Christ returns, the people that we love and the people who have gone on to be with Christ in the, in the now and in the years past and the years to come, they'll all return with Christ is what we're told. I thought they were going to pop up at the birth. Yeah, we'll talk about that too. <laughs> we just talked about it. <laughs> That's interesting because, and we're going to get into the details of that, but the new bodies thing happens when Christ returns. So right now, they're with Christ, but they don't have new bodies. What's that? Is it paradise? We could call it paradise, yeah. We could call it uh, heaven. You can call it um, any of those things are imperfect names for the, the spiritual realm. You know, a lot of times we have this idea of earth here and heaven up here. But, you know, it's really when, when Scripture talks about, you know, heaven and earth in, in those contexts, it's the physical and the spiritual. And, and God lives in the spiritual realm and we're in the physical realm and the design at creation was for those to overlap you know and you have God walking through the garden with man and those kinds of and it's and that was the design but at the fall of man that split apart God later rose up the you know Israelite people and built the temple and God's dwelling place was inside the holy of holies and that place the temple was where heaven and earth overlapped again as like this symbol that God meant for it to be together and so then that's what Christ is coming to refix and reboot is to bring those two back to be meshed together instead of split apart and so uh, that's kind of what's going on alright so First Thessalonians 4 let's go at um the last part of 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Alright, so first of all, the Christians who have died and have come back with Christ will be resurrected, will receive new bodies. Then second of all, the people who are still alive when Christ returns They'll receive new bodies, and then we'll all be with Christ forevermore. That's the fundamental teaching about what happens when Christ returns. So, uh, so far in our blanks, right, we've got who's who's revealed, gathered for greeting, taken for judgment, the dead return, believers get new bodies, that's the resurrection. Um, and the last one there, I think we've covered two, is, well, we just did, forever begins. And there's, we've got one blank left we're going to hit in just a second, but uh, forever begins when Christ returns. Quickly, let's go to Second um, Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. So next book over. And I'll just read for us here. We've got to wrap things up. 
and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed so again just echoing that there'll be this gathering for the the greeting there'll be a relief for the persecuted there'll be uh, a taken for judgment which will be like see in in second Thessalonians he's specifically talking to people who are being persecuted for their faith and he's saying you know when Christ returns he's going to gather you to him it's going to all be over and the people who have persecuted will receive their dues. And so it's, a, it's like a, an encouragement to these believers who are facing really terrible times. And he's saying, when Christ returns, all will be set right. And let's look lastly at First Peter. This comes... A little further on, past the Timothys and the Tituses and the Philemons and the Hebrews and the James, <laughs> into First Peter, chapter three. I think I've got the wrong passage somehow or another. How about you put this one in here just for me? Yeah, let's do Second Peter. <laughs> let's try Second Peter. All right, Second Peter. Three, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own... Uh, sorry, we're looking at verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 10 through 13, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you be? Look for hastening, uh, look for in the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt away with intense heat. When you pair this passage with what we read from Paul about creation longing to be reborn, creation longing to be set right, then there's this idea, I recall it, creation rebooted. And that's the last blank that we didn't fill in. Creation rebooted. In some sense or another, it's going to be completely remade. Um, whether that's an entirely new earth and this one's destroyed, or whether this one, as, it, as we know it, is destroyed and remade, that is associated with Christ's return as well. So we just covered a whole lot of stuff in a short amount of time. Uh, but these are the things that we are told most clearly that will be involved with Christ's return and what it will be like. There's nothing, uh, as you can see, secret about it. And it's very busy. And so we'll talk more details about what it involves as we go through this course. But thank you for coming today.